Happy Easter. And we can still say that because it is still, in fact, Easter. Uh, this may be a review for some of you, but Lent is 40 days, but Easter is longer. Easter is 50 days. So even though the discount candy is already sold out, I went this week and checked. Uh, myself and James and Alex, we will be wearing these Easter whites for another six weeks because we need time to celebrate the wonder that is the resurrection. We need time to make sense of it because in a lot of ways, Easter is like a, like a revolution. And revolutions, they change everything. It takes time to make sense of the aftermath. And we are all experiencing that in our own ways right now. So right now, we are undergoing the largest technological revolution since the printing press. In the advent of internet and smartphones, even though the internet has only been around for 30 years and smartphones for about 15, we're all trying to figure out what they mean for our lives, for our families, for our work, and for our society. It takes time to make sense of these huge changes. And that's even more true of Easter, because as Christians, we believe that Easter, that Christ's death and resurrection, is the turning point of all human history. Jesus, when he had, had appeared to two of the disciples on the road to Emmaus, he said that all of the Hebrew scriptures, which tell the story not just of the people of Israel, but of the whole universe, that they all point to him, it all hinges on him. And so if it takes us a lot of time to make sense of what we do with smartphones, it's gonna take us a lot of time to make sense of what we do, how we respond to the resurrection. And that's an opportunity that we have to enter into together this, this Easter season. And in our passage in our gospel today, it shows us a few ways in which Easter, the resurrection, transforms us. And while this text is so rich, there's so much happening, I'm not gonna be able to go into all of it, so instead, we're just going to look at a few ways in which the resurrection offers transformation. And I invite you that if something stands out to you, if something resonates with you, to spend time this week meditating on that and going deeper with that. So the, the first thing that we see in our passage is that the resurrection transforms our fears. So the, the, the disciples were meeting, they were sitting in a locked room and they were afraid. Why were they afraid? Well, so that was on Easter Sunday. So Jesus had been risen that day. Earlier that day in the morning, Peter and John went to the tomb and saw that it was empty. And they believed that it was empty, but if you look in chapter 20, verses eight and nine, they didn't know what to make sense of that. Yes, the tomb is empty, but what does that mean? Now, Mary helped them fill in the gaps when she actually did encounter the risen Lord. She says it means that Jesus is alive, but they still don't know what to do about that, but they do know how to feel. They feel afraid, and they're afraid because the chief priests who had gone through so much effort to try and get Jesus killed would probably go through the same effort to kill these rumors about whatever might have happened to Jesus. And as his closest followers, the disciples probably would have been the chief suspects. 
And so they were afraid of what might happen to them. Yet as they sit in their fear, Jesus enters and transforms their fear to gladness, which is what we, what we read in verse 19, or, or in verse 20, it says, then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. And that's interesting because the reasons for their fear, ostensibly this threat of death from the chief priests, that hadn't changed at all. When Jesus came among them, he didn't put an end to the schemes or to the suspicions of the chief priests, yet their fears were still transformed into gladness. How, how can this be? So in order to understand that, we have to understand what Jesus means when he says peace. And when he says peace in this way, it's not just a greeting among friends. We can get that because he says it two times and I don't think that Jesus is the kind of person who like says good morning and then when the crowd didn't have a loud enough response, he says it again. In my mind, I don't want to believe that Jesus is like that. Maybe he is, but it suggests that something more is happening here. Because when Jesus says this, peace be with you, he's not saying it as a greeting among friends, he's saying it as a king who has conquered, as a king who's come back from war and delivering the good news of victory for his people. And this would be very stunning for them because the 11 disciples here, they are people who probably wouldn't expect to have peace with Jesus. As if we think about it, 10 of them straight up abandoned Jesus, were nowhere to be seen when Jesus was going through his darkest hour. And Peter, who was there, didn't have the courage to identify himself with Jesus. John was the only one, as best as we can tell, who stayed with Jesus at the cross until the end. Yet Jesus does not say peace be with you only to John. He says peace be with you to all of them. All of these people who had in some way abandoned Jesus now can know his peace. And that's good news for us who if in our own ways when we've abandoned Jesus, when we've said, God, I don't trust you, I don't think your ways are good, I wanna do my own thing. Through Jesus, God looks at us and says, peace be with you. You have my peace. And Jesus can authoritatively say that because he is God. He's speaking on God's behalf, saying that we at long last have the peace of God. We have the fullness of life that that promises. And so we have peace with God. And after he says that we have peace, he shows us the proof of that peace. Perhaps Peter was like, Jesus, how can I possibly have peace with you? Didn't you see what I did? Didn't you see how I said, man, I want nothing to do with you just so I can be thought of better in the eyes of these servants? And so Jesus not only pronounces this peace that he has the authority to pronounce, he shows us how he has the authority to do it, why it is that we as people who have abandoned God could know his peace. So immediately after saying, peace be with you, he shows them his hands and his sides. We might think of the text in Isaiah that we've read a few times over this past week that say that he was pierced for our transgressions and by his wounds we were healed. Though 
we were the ones who had abandoned Jesus. Jesus was the one who ended up abandoned so that we can be welcomed into the family of God, so that we can know his peace. And so even though this peace of God does not change the life circumstances of the disciples, it changes their life's aim and end, and so they can be glad. Now, if you're like me, you might be thinking, that sounds great, but in the rough and tumble of my life, how is that actually good for me when everything might feel like uh, it's out of control, when it might feel like the opposite of peace? And I think the, the best way in which I can relate it to something is it's like if, if you've ever had a job and been working and maybe your boss does not like you, maybe your boss is upset with the quality of your work, but your boss's boss loves you and know that you're doing good work. So for three years before I went to seminary, I was working at a consulting firm and in my main project in that time, I had one stakeholder who was kind of a grouchy guy, and about once a month or so, he would tell me everything that he thought that I was doing wrong. Not only that, he would call my client and tell him about how bad I was, and sometimes he would do this in meetings in my face. And that was hard. I didn't like it. It made me angry but I never was scared that I was gonna lose my job because I knew that my client was very pleased with the work that I was doing. And I knew that my manager also was as well. And so even though that I had tr trouble in my job, I knew that in the end, I had a confident end. I had this sense of peace. And I think in some ways that's how the peace of God gets worked out in our life, that we have lots of things in our life that are turbulent, that do not feel peaceful. But in the end, we can be confident that though these troubles are real, if Jesus can take care of sin and death, he can take care of us. We know that God is with us in, his suffer in our suffering here and now, and not only that, we know that because we have the peace of God, we can have an experience, a foretaste of the fullness of life that God has for us. We know that our suffering will end and that we can forever be with God, enjoying the peace that we were made for. So the resurrection transforms our fear and gives us gladness. But if we keep reading, we see that that peace, it wasn't just to, for our comfort, it wasn't just a balm for our anxiety, though it can in some ways be that. We see that our peace that we receive from the Lord has a purpose. And indeed, this peace of God transforms our purpose. We continue reading in verse 21, Jesus says, peace be with you, as the Father has sent me, even so, I am sending you. This is John's version of the Great Commission. This is John's version of what our marching orders are as followers of Jesus. He says, as the Father has sent me, I am sending you. That's, that's our North Star. And that begs the question of how, what was Christ sent to do or how was he sent? 
And if we look in the Gospel of John, if we look in different parts, we can get a sense of that. In John chapter three, uh, Jesus says that he was sent into the world, that the world might be saved through him. In John chapter five, he says that he was sent here not to do his own will, but to do the will of the one who sent him. And he goes on to say in that chapter that his works reveal the nature of the one who sent him. And so from that, we can get a sense of what that means for us. Now, we aren't sent to be the saviors of the world. That is for sure, we are not Jesus. But God, through him working in us, can bring others to know the saving work of Jesus. And we have, and for this to happen, it matters how we do it. We have to not just do that on our own way. We have to do it trusting in Jesus. When our will does not align with him, we have to trust that his way is better and, and do it that way. And so this gives us a new purpose. No longer are we rebels against God. No longer is our lives only about trying to get ourselves a nice house, or a good job, or a happy family, or a good name, though those things all are good in their own ways. Now, with this new purpose, it becomes a matter of how can I be present in this house, in this job, in this family, in these relationships, to bring the fullness and peace of God to these places that God has sent me. Ephesians 2.10 says that God has prepared good works for us in advance to do. Is that kind of crazy that God has things set out for us to do that he wants to do through us, that you play a part in his larger plan? Now, if we're, if we're going to do this what, if we're going to do this what of bringing the fullness and peace of God to those around us, it's going to matter how we do that. We not just have to speak the right words, we have to not only show this peace in our words, but also in our works. We not only have to articulate this peace, but embody it. How we do it matters. And John Stott captures this connection of the what and how of our being sent like Christ very well. So this is a long quote, but I think it's very worth it, so bear with me here. And talking about how we're sent like Christ, this is how he encapsulates it. He says, if the Christian mission is to be modeled on Christ's mission, it will surely involve for us, as it did for him, an entering into other people's worlds. In evangelism, it will mean entering their world and the world of their tragedy and lostness in order to share Christ with them where they are. In social activity, it's not just evangelism, it's also how we embody it. In social activity, it will mean a willingness to renounce the comfort and security of our own cultural background in order to give ourselves in service to people of another culture whose needs we may never before have known or experienced. Incarnational mission, whether evangelistic or social or both, necessitates a costly identification with people and their actual situations. Jesus of Nazareth was moved with compassion by the sight of needy human beings, whether sick or bereaved, hungry, harassed, or helpless. Should his people's compassion not be aroused by those same sights? 
So John Stott is saying that because we are sent like Christ into the world, what we do in terms of bringing this peace and how we do it in terms of just as Jesus took on our flesh and lived among us, how we do it identifying with those people around us and entering into their world, it matters. And so this begs the question for us of what does this transformed purpose look like in the places that God has sent me? What does it look like in the places where I find myself right now? How can God use me to both articulate and embody this peace that Christ has pronounced for us? I just wanna say here, this peace that God has given us is not dependent upon us doing this well. It's a free gift of God. The disciples did not earn that peace. They had left Jesus high and dry. This is how we respond to the peace that we've been given. And for me, as I think about that, as I read that quote from John Stott, I get excited, I get pumped up, I wanna run through a wall. But then the more I think about it, actually, the more overwhelmed I get (laughs) because it sounds hard, it sounds overwhelming, and I don't know if I can do it. And the reality is that I can't, that if I'm going to do that, I myself must be transformed. And that's why Jesus does what he does next. So after he said, after he said peace, he says it again. And just as the first time when he said peace, he follows it up with an action that demonstrates the means by which that peace was accomplished. He says, peace be with you, and shows them his hands and his sides. That's how you have this peace. Once again, he says, peace be with you, and follows it up with an action that will show us how we can do what he has commissioned us to do. So what is that action? He, he breathes on us, he breathes on the disciples and says to them, receive the Holy Spirit. And now, I don't know about you, but I've always found this to be kind of an awkward thing. I don't imagine like breathing on someone to be a a socially normal thing to do. It it certainly is not right now in our COVID time, Um, but it also like reads kind of weird uh, because the word in Greek is a word that only appears once in the New Testament, even though the like word for breathe or to blow, uh, there's a different word that appears a lot of other times. So like, why did John use this word here, even though it's weird, just like the action uh, that it communicates is? Well, we can get a sense of the significance of that weirdness if we look to the context of that weird word in the Old Testament. So in Genesis 2, God has formed Adam out of the dust, and Adam is a lifeless being, and then God breathes into him. He breathes his life into him, and he goes from being a lifeless being to a human being from the breath of God. And it uses that same word that John uses here. It's used again in Ezekiel 37 when God asks Ezekiel to look at these valley of dry bones, and he asks Ezekiel, can these bones live again? And Ezekiel says, God, you know, which is a wise way of saying, like, I don't know, God, you do. And that might be how some of us feel like when we think about the commission of Jesus. We think, could I actually do that? Little old me? And then 
Ezekiel, or God breathes on these new bones through Ezekiel. And it turns out that these dry bones, little by little, start to have muscles form on them, start to have tissue form on them. They're reconstituted as new beings. They are a new creation. And that is exactly what happens here when Jesus breathes the Holy Spirit on his disciples. They are made new so that they can do a new thing that they could not have done on their own. They are transformed in the essence of their being. So what practically does that look like? I think uh, if we want to think about this right, we can't think of the Holy Spirit as like a tool that we use to do the work that God has given us to do, because it's more than that. Like we said, it transforms us. So how, how can we think about this? I think a helpful way to think about it is like magnets. So if you think about a magnet, you have a magnet and you have a piece of metal like iron or something, and the iron is drawn to the magnet. And when it's drawn to the magnet, the magnet, through its magnetic field, it aligns the atoms of that magnet so they're aligned in a new way, and that changes the properties of that piece of iron, such that if it comes into contact with the paperclip, even though this piece of iron that is not magnetic on its own, all of a sudden, those paper clips are drawn to that piece of iron. The piece of iron has been changed and now can do something that it could not have done before because of the properties of this magnet have uh, been instantiated or have come to life in this piece of iron. And that's what happens with us in the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit outworks in us. It aligns our hearts such that we can do things that we couldn't do things before, such that we would want to do things that we couldn't do before. And this is how uh, one theologian describes it. I believe his name is Michael Reeves. He says, the spirit would never be interested in merely empowering us to do good. His uh, His desire is to bring us to such a hearty enjoyment of God through Christ that we delight to know him, that we delight in all his ways, and therefore we want to do as he wants, and we hate the thought of ever grieving him. This is that transformation that can begin to take place as the Holy Spirit works in us so that we can know and experience the peace of God in our being and such that we can be people who live into this new purpose. Now, I, I uh, messed up here. I miscommunicated. I didn't communicate soon enough, and I had hoped for our first reading today to be from Acts 3. In uh, Easter, there's this weird time when our Old Testament reading can be from Acts because that's actually about the history of the beginning of this new people of God. And in Acts chapter 3, we read how Peter is preaching to the chief priests and he's talking to them as people who handed over Jesus to be crucified. And he is extending to them an offer of peace, even though they themselves are directly responsible in one way for having Jesus killed. How can he do that? How can he, who had before uh, been so different, how could he be offering this peace? It's because he through the Holy Spirit working in him, had such a deep experience of this peace that he knew that if someone like him could know and experience the peace of God, these people could as well. 
The Holy Spirit helps Peter experience and offer that peace. And in fact, it had him offering it there in the first place. He no longer was just living out of self-preservation. He no longer was denying Jesus before a, a servant girl, but was proclaiming him amongst the same people who, as we read in our gospel passage right now, he was very afraid of because this work of the Holy Spirit has transformed him. The resurrection transforms our being, and it transforms so many other things too. If you go on, you can read how it transforms our doubts, how even though Thomas did not know what to think, Jesus didn't look down on him. He still gave him the same uh, welcome of peace that he gave these disciples. And even though Thomas might have been afraid, if we're doubting, we might be afraid of what would happen if we let Jesus in. When Jesus comes in, he brings peace, he brings gladness. And in fact, the things that Thomas had been insisting upon seeing, these scars on his hands and sides, once he sees Jesus, he doesn't even go for those. He just directly says, my Lord and my God, which is in fact one of the highest statements of worship that anyone in the Gospels ever says. That in the resurrection, as we make sense of the reality of it, that Jesus actually died and actually rose again, even our doubts can be transformed into the deepest of beliefs. And so I invite us in this season of Easter to spend time reflecting on the resurrection and what a great gift this is, how it is revolutionary, how it transforms us, how it transforms our fears, our purpose, and even our very being. And I ask and pray that we would come to know that in a more full way in our own lives and know the transformation and power of our risen Lord. Amen.